in some ways, it's kind of strange that anyone would become a Christian. In some ways, it's strange that anyone wouldn't become a Christian. But in other ways, it's strange that anyone would. Here's why. There is no guarantee of financial success being a Christian. As some preachers would tell you, there is. There isn't. It's not true. Um, Christians follow a crucified saviour who promised this, that those who want to follow him will need to daily pick up their own cross, deny themselves. Suffering is an essential part of the Christian life. And to be a Christian means that you set your hope on eternity, which none of your five senses can experience before that time comes. So why do it? you look later. <laughs> One goes, how to clear a room in five minutes? How to destroy a church in a matter of seconds? I, I want to ask the question, what draws people in? What, you know, there's a professed 1.6 billion Christians on the planet. What draws them in? Why? It's the desire to know God. There's nothing else you can put it down to but the desire to know God. That is what Christianity offers you. Jesus offered us a relationship with God. Jesus himself professed to have a relationship with the Father and he promised that to all those who follow him. And so, really, Christianity, the success of Christianity hangs on the fact that deep within us there's a desire to know the one who made us. Without that, Nothing's happening. Without that, this thing is not going to move forward and grow. This thing will dissipate within months and years, and clearly it hasn't. So something's going on. The strongest human drive of all is desire. There's no two ways about it. Guilt can take you a certain way. That can drive you to do certain things. Moral conviction can drive you to do certain things. Fear is a strong drive that can push you towards doing certain things, but desire outstrips them all. When it comes to guilt or fear, there's a sense of having to do something, even moral conviction. When it comes to desire, it's getting to do something. Totally different. Complete. If someone's driven by fear or guilt, as soon as the fear and guilt is removed, the thing they were doing, they stop doing. Phew. When driven by desire, there's no limit. The desire to know God is at the heart of Christianity and at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Reconciliation with God is one thing that Christianity and Jesus most certainly offer. God himself, the Bible says, wakes desires, holy desires in us to know him. Not common desires. We're all born with common desires. We're all born, I guess, with natural desires that aren't necessarily wrong at all. Desires for food, desires for company, desire for sex. These things are natural to what it is to be a human. They're not bad things. But this desire for God is something that God awakens and quickens in us. And it operates on a deeper level, the level of the spirit, deeper than any other desire you can have. I would test, this isn't theory, I've been a Christian 17 years. I became a Christian when I was 18. From that point on, there has been a desire in the depth of my being just to know him that outstrips any other desire in my life. 
We're looking at our last message in the series of 1 Peter today, and the subject is suffering. Now, you may be surprised to hear that it's not going to be a doom and gloom message, but actually a message of glory and joy. So just to put your minds at rest, really, before we get started, it's not going to be a day of despair and mourning. It's going to be a day of glory and joy. They're the themes of Christian suffering. Christian suffering is a very specific kind of suffering. It's not just that life's tough, okay? Because life's tough for a lot of people. It's not just that you go through a hard season. Everyone does. It's not just that you get sick. Everyone gets sick. That's, those things aren't Christian suffering. You can't say, oh, that's me, I'm suffering because I'm a Christian, when actually someone else is suffering exactly the same thing and they're not. It doesn't work. Those things aren't Christian suffering. Christian suffering is very specific. And today we're going to look at how Christian suffering relates to our knowing Jesus better. How Christian suffering relates to our conduct in life. How Christian suffering relates to God's judgment. And how Christian suffering relates to spiritual warfare. We are going to be here for hours. Okay. (laughs) 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or a meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now go to verse 8 of chapter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary or your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Suffering and knowing Jesus. Let's read verse 12 to 14 again of chapter 4. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. An essential part of knowing Jesus is suffering. Essential. Anyone tells you anything else, they're trying to con you. Look at them and treat them in the same way that you would a used car salesman who's trying to flog you some old thing that's never going to work. An essential part of knowing Jesus is suffering. Jesus said it. It's clear all the way through the Bible. That's the way it is. Now, Jesus' suffering was unique. It's so important that you understand this. What Jesus accomplished on the cross was a one-off. He won for the world reconciliation to God. So if you're here today and you're thinking, this guy was saying earlier that Jesus offers reconciliation to God, in what way, how? Through the cross. 
The Bible is clear at the cross, it was a transaction whereby God's righteous anger at your sin, the things you do that, um, that break the Ten Commandments, the things you do that um, dishonour God, your, your sin, my sin, at the cross, God's righteous anger was poured out on Jesus. Jesus willingly suffered that, so that God's righteous anger would be appeased. The Bible calls it substitutional atonement. So he was there as our substitute in our place to atone for our sins. That was a one-off. He did it past, that was for past, present, future, for everyone who's ever lived. Okay? And then he rose again from the dead to secure eternal life for all those who trust in him. That was a one-off. And yet there was a whole other kind of suffering that Jesus experienced throughout his whole life as well, where he was opposed, threatened, harangued, insulted, uh, maligned, and all these various things because of his righteousness, because of his genuine desire for God. Now, as we are joined to Jesus, the suffering we experience is not the cross suffering, the atonement. He's done that for us. So we're reconciled to God by God's grace. There's nothing that we do, but because we are joined with Jesus and his spirit comes and lives inside of us and we have a desire for righteousness and for the things of God and the world is still as evil today as it was when Jesus was around, there's a clash. And so the same suffering he experienced in his life, we will experience in our life. And it's part of knowing him. And it's part of representing him in the world. It just is. Our union with Christ, though it's a gift, it actually, when it happens, it revolutionises our lives and transforms us. You can never be the same again. Once Jesus, by his spirit, comes to live inside of you, you can't be the same again. Your fundamental identity changes. The Bible describes it as, it's very vivid language, the heart of stone being removed and the heart of flesh being put in. So it's like heart surgery. It's not, it's not just kind of, oh, it's a little religious experience, yeah? Or it's turned over a new leaf. It's not that. It's a complete miracle whereby God changes at the core of who you are. Your moral centre is changed. You used to be directed towards the created, whether that was you were directed towards yourself or another person or a particular hobby or a particular thing that was made. You're now directed back towards the one who made you, your creator. Your whole direction internally is different. So a revolution takes place, but not only that, you become a revolutionary. Yeah? So you revolutionise and then you become a revolutionary. Not in a political sense, you're not looking to overturn things, you know, and just kind of... Because You see, once God breaks in and you realise the core problem is my heart and my sin, you know that's what needs dealing with. And only as that happens can the other changes take place in society and culture. It's no point just trying to turn over the culture and society and bring in a new system because people's hearts are the same. That's why communism doesn't work. Communism is a great idea if it wasn't for the sinfulness of men. It's a great idea. Just share it all, fantastic. But we're sinners, so it doesn't work. And every political system that promises so much is hindered by the fact that we are fundamentally corrupt. So, the, so as a Christian revolutionary, you're looking to see people experience that miracle where their heart stone is taken out, a heart flesh is put in, they're reconciled to God and born again. Yeah? And then as they move into the realms where God's called them to work and etc., etc., they can bring kingdom change into those realms as they bring a godly influence. But that's what we're about as Christian revolutionaries, if you like. So as we live with this in mind, we're here to make a difference, here to make a change, we will experience suffering. Nowhere in the Bible, except possibly Job, suggests that this is sickness. Which Christians, you often find we're talking about, you know, I'm suffering, suffering for the Lord, it's about sickness. You would really struggle to argue that one biblically. It's a different sermon, so I'm not going to go right down that road, but you struggle to argue that biblically. It is things like this. Christian suffering is insults, opposition, hostility, slander, mockery. 
because you're a Christian. That's Christian suffering, biblically. We know that's how it was for Jesus. We know that's how it was for the early church. They were scattered. Some, there was stonings. There was imprisonments. There was seasons of it. Sometimes they enjoyed peace and favour. And then it all kicked off and they had to scatter. But they experienced it. They were scourged, weren't they? Because they refused to be quiet about Jesus. It marked the early church. It marked um, Paul's life. Paul was harangued and chased by the Jews around the known world. He had to constantly avoid ambushes and various things. Why? Because, he, because of the stand he was making for Jesus. And because he was proactively looking to bring Christian revolution. Seeing people's hearts and lives changed. It was the same for the Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John. He ended up his life on the Isle of Patmos. Why? He was in exile. He was exiled. Why? Because he wouldn't stop talking about Jesus. It was the same for Peter, who wrote this book. He was crucified upside down under the persecution of the Emperor Nero. So the Emperor Nero kicked off this massive persecution, and then they, they discovered that Peter was at the core of this kind of Christian thing that was going on, wanted to kill him. They said, We're going to crucify you. He said, Only upside down. So why? I'm not worthy to die in the same way Jesus died. Staggering affection for Jesus. He'd just been revolutionised by Jesus. He just was never the same again. This is the same guy who denied he knew Jesus when Jesus was arrested. Just been revolutionised by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here's the scary thing. If, as a Christian, you live your life with the purpose of avoiding that kind of suffering, you end up avoiding Jesus. You end up avoiding Jesus. You put a massive limit on how intimately you can know him. There's a disgrace in knowing Jesus. There's a disgrace in it. Let me show you from the Bible so you know I'm not just making it up. Hebrews 11, listen to what it says about Moses. You know that Hebrews 11, if you know your Bible, you know that it's a famous list of people that did amazing exploits for God. Listen to this, Hebrews 11, 24. You haven't got to turn there, but you can if you want. By faith, Moses... Now, you know the story of Moses, maybe you don't. He was um, a Hebrew, a Jew, living in Egypt. Um, when he was being born, um, the Jewish babies were being killed by the Egyptians, so his mum, uh, not wanting him to die, obviously, stowed him away in a, in a, in a reed basket and put him in the river. Um, by the grace of God and in God's providence, he was discovered by Pharaoh's daughter, who took a shine to him and brought him up as her own. She brought him up as an Egyptian. So he could have enjoyed all the wonders of the Egyptian kingdom. Listen to this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with God's people than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Listen, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking to the reward. The reproach of Christ. What does reproach mean? It means blame, it means disgrace. Listen to this in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13. Jesus suffered outside the gate. That means he was crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. There's a reproach associated with knowing Jesus that you can't get rid of and you can't dull it down. And if you do, you lose Jesus because this is who he is. It's a cul-de-sac to avoid certain issues that where you stand out for fear of opposition. If, the, if you are here and you're a Christian, some of you will be, some of you may not be, but if you're here, you're a Christian and you avoid certain issues where you know if you say it or whatever, it's going to cause a stink. If you, it's a cul-de-sac. You're just, you're just bowing under the fear of man and you're trying to please man. The Bible says the fear of man will prove to be a trap. We just not to go down that road. I remember when I was at university... I was in a lecture of about 150 students. I was a student fresher. Um, and uh, they were talking about, it, it was just years ago, you can probably tell by my hairline. And um, <laughs> they were talking about the uh, European 
human rights, children's rights thing. It was a big deal. It just coming. It was a huge deal, this whole human rights thing and children's rights. And they spoke about children's rights. And as I'm sitting there, there's something that's so massive they're not mentioning. I'm finding an indignation rise up within me. And in the end, I thought, I've just got to ask the question because it's a glaring gap. So I, said, so I put my hand up and said, yeah. I said, it's good what we're hearing about the rights of children. He said, I said, I'm just not sure. I've heard nothing on the rights of the unborn child. Well, you should have felt the atmosphere in the room flip. And uh, you're aware of faces coming back and looking and people not happy at all. But I thought, hold on a minute, it lacks massive integrity to talk about this without talking about that. I'm not after contention, I'm not after trouble. But if you talk about this without talking about that, you lack massive integrity. It's a disgrace. It's an absolute disgrace. If a baby is born at 20 weeks, you do all you can to save its life. You pour millions of pounds and attention to saving its life. And yet, if it's in a different location, two weeks older, you can kill it. It's just a complete disgrace. And people need to say it. With grace, but you say it. And I had some flack for that. But at the end of the day, I don't know who it was who said it, you know, but evil triumphs when the, when the good keep quiet. Mustn't do it. What you tolerate will dominate. If you just tolerate things, tolerate, they'll begin to dominate. We're called to be the light of the world. The implication is the world is dark and we're shining, or the salt of the earth. In those days, there was no fridges, so you wanted to keep meat from rotting, you rub salt into it. So to keep the rot out, that's what we're there for. It's very important that we understand that. Here's what Wayne Grudem says, he's a theologian. Suffering as a Christian confirms to us the fact that we are indeed Christ's. This is because union with Christ involves not only union with him in his death and resurrection, but also union with him in the whole pattern of his life, which includes his suffering for righteousness. Listen to the Apostle Paul. For Christ's sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Strong language. Passionate language, the language of desire. I just want to know him, whatever it takes. It's an essential part of following Jesus. There's a price to be paid. Secondly, suffering and conduct. Let's read verses 15 and 16. Chapter 4. Let none of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, evildoer, or meddler. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Okay, if you're here as a Christian, don't kill people and then moan that you're getting a hard time. Yeah? No, it's because I'm a Christian. That's why they're putting me in prison. No, it's because you killed someone. Okay? It's not Christian suffering. Right? Or don't steal things and then get flat. You say, well, everyone, everyone takes those pens. If they're not your pens from the office, don't take them. It's stealing. Okay? Well, everyone's doing it. So what? It's a complete compromise to the Christian faith. And if you get hauled in with all the others because there's no pens left in the office, and if I'm two in your desk or one in your pocket, you've brought reproach to the name of Christ instead of bringing glory to his name. Don't call suffering for theft Christian suffering. It's not. Don't suffer as an evildoer. If you malign people, do wicked things, say gossip, slander, and then get nailed for it, you deserve it. It's not Christian suffering. Don't suffer as a meddler. Great word. (laughs) 
Someone who just get busybody, oh, I won't get involved in that. Just get out of it. Every now and then you have to get involved in something that's not your business to save someone from being really hurt badly. Every now and then. Whether it's physically, someone's just getting pummeled in the street. Some, you know, sometimes you just, you know, there's, t- there's a time, but do not make it your practice to involve yourself in other people's affairs. It will come back at you tenfold. And that ain't Christian suffering. Okay? We need wisdom. Read the Proverbs. Was it someone who meddles in someone else's business is like someone who takes the dog by the ears? Don't take the dog by the ears, mate, because it'll kick off. Yeah? Don't meddle in other people's business because it'll kick off. Don't be a busybody. It's not Christian suffering. Peter's very clear, very, very practical here. Christians should suffer for being a Christian. And that doesn't mean being annoying, smug and self-righteous. That's not Christian suffering. You're suffering because you're a Pharisee and you deserve it. <laughs> if you, Christian suffering is when you suffer for being like Jesus. <laughs> he wasn't self-righteous or smug. Yeah, He loved people. He loved righteousness. It's very important when we understand what this is talking about. Suffering as a Christian entails opposition and hardship that you wouldn't otherwise experience if you weren't following Jesus. Okay? That's, what it, that's what it's about. Now, a very common strain of thought around at the moment, it's okay to have your beliefs as long as you're keeping to yourself. Have you experienced that? Very, very common thing. Keep to yourself and it's fine, you know. Um, it's great that you believe that. I love that. Just don't bother me with it, okay? That's the general, that's the general um, scene that we're at. Let me just say to you, there is nothing further from biblical Christianity than keeping it to yourself. Okay? <laughs> Don't share it with, with others arrogantly, presumptuously, annoyingly, okay? Love and serve people. But share Jesus with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are to be fully engaged as Christians in a dark and rotting world. Fully engaged. Our conversations should be full of grace, seasoned with salt. Not full of salt, seasoned with grace. Right? Just understand what, if it's full of salt, you're just really annoying. Combative, confrontational, you're rubbing everyone up the wrong way, and occasionally you do something nice. Okay? That's not the biblical proportion. Full of grace, okay? You show people favour, love, you just let Jesus' heart for people just grow in you, and, you, and you, 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 you're good to people. You're, you're, you're a good person. But it's got to be seasoned with salt. There are times you've got to say, hold on a minute. If you don't do that, the Bible says you're just going to be trampled underfoot by people. You've got to put the salt in as well. That's the way we should do it. You should hit the workplace, you should hit the campus, you should hit the school, wherever you're at, the school gate, wherever you are, full of grace, season with salt, sharing Jesus. That's what we're about. And you say, well, what if I suffer? What if, people, what if people turn on me? Well, what is Peter's comfort? The spirit of glory and God rests on you, man. You will know. Here's how Gwydon describes it. The spirit of glory and God resting upon you indicates an unusual, say unusual, unusual. fullness, say fullness, fullness, of the presence, say presence, presence, of the Holy Spirit to strengthen and to give a foretaste of heavenly glory. You like that? If people turn against you because you're stand for Christ, you will know the spirit of glory and God resting on you in a remarkable way. It's nothing to fear. It's nothing to be afraid of. A big part of the church in this nation, growing in its identity beyond just a Sunday morning, it's seen as a Sunday thing, church is a Sunday thing. A big part of the church growing beyond that is that we fully engage public for Christ wherever we find ourselves. 
People understand how the church is actually involved and interested and cares about the world because we should. We represent Jesus who owns the world. Sunday morning is the culmination. The people come together who love the Lord, who are searching and asking questions. It's the culmination of, of, of that. But actually the big deal is what we do Monday to Saturday. Number three, suffering and judgment. These last two points are shorter. But I want to, I want to make reference to them because it's important. Suffering and judgment. Chapter 4 of Peter, verse 17. It's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. If it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and of the sinner? Grudem says, I'm thinking judgment, how, how does God judge Christians and how does that work? He says this, the word for judgment is a term which can refer to a judgment which results in good and bad evaluations. A judgment which may issue in approval or discipline as well as condemnation. So what he's saying is this, is that God's aim for you in your Christian sufferings is that you are refined like gold. In order for gold to be properly refined, it has to go through the process seven times. And uh, likewise, God will take you through fiery trials if you're following him. He will. Where the pressure's on and opposition comes. And the idea is, is that during those times, it's a little bit like when you squeeze something, you know, and the, 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 the kind of impure stuff comes out and God can just wipe it off and he makes you more like Jesus. He's committed, if you're a believer, to making you more like Jesus. Utterly committed, zealous, 100% devoted to doing that. And he'll take you through trials that bring out the bad stuff so he can clear it off. He'll do that because he wants to make you more and more like Jesus. That's what this is about. This is what it means to say judgment begins at the household of God. God brings his judgment to the church before to the world. Different kinds of judgment. You see, again to Grudem. The picture is that God has begun judging within the church and will later move outward to judge those outside the church. The refining fire of judgment is leaving no one untouched, but Christians are being purified and strengthened by it. Sins are being eliminated and trust in God and holiness of life are growing. Just a positive thing. Any of you that have been following Jesus for more than a few months, you would experience trials and at times opposition. As you come through that and remain following him, you come through and you think, wow, what's God, look what God's done in me, I'm not the same. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. The judgment that's coming to the world is completely different. It's a judgment of condemnation. Whereby those who have lived and just scorned God, blasphemed him, lived lives that have just robbed him of glory, lived lives that have just robbed themselves of God's destiny for them, Live lives that have even, even destroying the planet, God's creation. There's only, there is holy wrath and judgment coming. You might think that sounds so antiquated. How can you say that? 21st century London. I only say it because it's true. And if it's true, you need to know. Because if you're not in Christ, then at the moment you're under God's judgment. You're under his wrath. You need to escape. That's the bottom line. I don't say that with a smug smile or as if I'm on such higher ground. I have fled from that into Christ. And it's not that God delights to bring judgment, but his holiness and his justice mean that he will. All rights, all wrongs, sorry, will be put right. All wrongs will be put right. And I think in our hearts, we, think that's, we know that's a good thing. When we hear about things on the news, someone needs to put that right. True. But who's going to put right the things you do wrong? You either bear that yourself or you run to God's provision, Jesus, who perfectly took the blame, the judgment for your sins. So I want to just encourage you, if you don't know Christ, 
flee to him, cling to him. God will completely forgive you. There will be no judgment of condemnation for you. And God will promise you eternal life. Final thing, suffering and Satan. You see, mixed in this whole thing, mysteriously, inexplicably, is the work of the evil one. He is involved in it. His intentions obviously are different from God, but he's involved. And God, even to an extent, will will, will use him mysteriously. But listen, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Okay? Proactive. Seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brothers throughout the world. Satan's aim in your sufferings as a Christian is to overcome you, is to overwhelm you, is to discourage you, is to isolate you. As I've just said that, the Holy Spirit has just told me there's at least one believer here and you've just, you've not, you've resisted being part of a church community. I don't know why. God hasn't shown me. But you've resisted that. And I just want to say, the Bible says in Proverbs, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. Don't do it. God has provided the church. It's a beautiful thing. For some here, I believe, it's because you've had a bad experience. And I just say to you, God wants to heal you from that so you can enjoy the wonder of being part of a church. Don't isolate yourself. Don't be a travelling, nomadic Christian. It's just not God's plan for you. It just isn't. God has provided the church as a place of good soil where your roots can go down and where you can grow in him. And you can learn to do those things like serving one another, forgiving one another, bearing with one another. If you're never around one another, you never get to do it. It's God's plan for you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. But that's what Satan wants, just to isolate you, rob you, destroy, to keep you from fruitfulness. You know what? You don't have to succumb to any of those things. Hallelujah. None of them. You don't have to. Submit to God. Resist him. How do you resist him? You're watchful, you're sober, you've got your wits about you, and then you take heart from the fact all around the world there are other brothers and sisters that are experiencing suffering for the gospel. Yeah? And you think on that and say, it's not just me. Because that sometimes can happen, can't it? You get to the poor old me's. Yeah? He's always only me going through this. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. We're part of a glorious thing God's doing around the world. Many of you would have received this text probably throughout the week from others in the church about what's going on in India at the moment. Churches being burned down, pastors being killed. You need to stand with them in prayer because it may come here one day. You need to stand with them in prayer because there are brothers and our sisters and they're, 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 they're only experiencing that because they're in Christ. We need to feel that in our heart and pray, God, deliver them. God, deliver them. But I want to end. Look at, look at the promises now that Peter says. And after you've suffered a little while, you might think it's going on for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the light of eternity, it's a little while. Okay? That's the biblical mentality. A little while. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, you won't just send an angel, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Amen? He will. You might think, I've gone through this, this situation, this trial, I feel like I've been robbed. He'll restore you. He will restore what has been robbed. You might think, my strength has gone. He'll strengthen you. You might think, I'm wobbling. He'll establish you. You might think, I'm doubting. He'll confirm you. You're mine. He will, because he's devoted to you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. 
Amen. Amen. Should we pray? Father, we want to thank you for the privilege of being joined to Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of experiencing, at times, being ostracized, insulted, mocked, because we know Jesus. What a glorious thing. We thank you that even during those seasons, the spirit of glory and God rests upon us. And I want to ask you now, Father, just as we're all gathered here, for each of us here that are in relationship with you, that know you, that you would make us really bold, gracious, godly, loving, but bold. That we would be hungry and thirsty for righteousness. That we wouldn't sit idly by and let people destroy their lives and destroy others. But you would put a holy hunger in us to see your kingdom come. That, Lord, we would allow you to burn into our hearts the things that burn into your hearts. We would carry your heart around and represent you. We would be a passionate people. That we would be a people that aren't afraid to get angry about things in a righteous way. Lord, that we wouldn't just be weak and flimsy and blown around by every opinion that comes. That we wouldn't live under the fear of man. That we would live free from that in the fear of the Lord. So we just pray, pray for us as a church. Oh God, oh God, that you would send us into this world and that we would look like Jesus. Pray in his name, Father. Amen.